Welcome to the Make Dementia Your Bitch podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Rita Jablonski. I'm a nurse practitioner and researcher with almost 35 years of experience working with people who have dementia and their family and formal caregivers. I explain why behaviors happen, what the behaviors mean, and how to best handle them. The information in this podcast is for educational purposes and is no substitute for medical advice or care. This is Rita Jablonski with the Make Dementia Your Bitch podcast, and today is episode 31. Cannot believe we've made it to 31. I have a very special guest today, Donna Moranti. She is a nurse with extensive experience in geriatrics, and she also has a business in which she provides dementia education. Donna, is there anything else you'd like to add to that intro? Oh, thank you, Rita, for having me here today. We we learn as we go, and we've built a great model of care over the last 40 or 50 years, taking people out of psych wards and loosen the terrible restraints. But it's the belief of myself and lots of people these days that we can polish things up and do a little better. So the education that I try and offer is based on uh, some new things that we're learning, a breath of fresh air, take it out of the dark and into the light. But I'm very glad to be here with you today, Rita. Thank you for having me. Thank you for being here. So your audience, predominantly healthcare professionals, family Um, caregivers, or mixed? Mixed, very much mixed. When I do my classes, I offer a training for uh, care aides, SENAs, home, home health providers, I also offer the required class for people that want a credential as a certified dementia practitioner. But it's very much a a mixed audience. I have people who take the classes because they have a loved one who's just been diagnosed, or I have a home caregiver who is about at their wit's end because probably they've been reading too many pamphlets and not living life as it's unfolding. But yeah, very much a mixed audience. And we tailor um, the education to the need of the person that's seeking it. It's come to my attention that most nursing school programs to this day are still teaching um, reality reorientation. And I do remember I had one who had recently passed their NCLEX and when we got to the subject of reality orientation versus living their truth and joining them wherever they are, they wanted to argue that point. This is what we learned in nursing school, and this is what the NCLEX said. And my the best advice that I could give is what? Do what you have to do to pass the NCLEX. And when you get out into the real world, let me know how that all works out for you. So with the dementia certification classes, when I do them anyway, I don't just say what to do or how to do it, but it's so important to have that fundamental understanding of, first of all, why is this happening and work from there. And when you see any curriculum, I think, no matter who, how great it is or who wrote it, if it's not applied in teaching as how can we apply this to each individual 
and I stress the word individual that we're taking care of, then you just read a book. So I think that what we need now is to bring what you and I are espousing as far as this breath of fresh air in dementia care. Yes, they can learn new things and yes, they can be semi-independent for as long as possible, as opposed to that old school method of they got a dementia diagnosis, better kick the door down and go in and rearrange their life and control it from now on. So my focus is very much on delving into Maslow's hierarchy of needs. We tend to think of needs over the years, toileting, food, clothing, shelter, those needs go so much higher than that and and right into the later stages of dementia. For us to say, I'll give you an example. Okay, you can maybe be in a memory care or prefer to call it memory enhancement building and someone might be calling out, nurse, hello, hello. And you might say, what, does that person need something? I hear them calling for attention. Oh, no, they're fine. We just checked on them. They don't need anything. We took care of everything. They're just, they're doing that because they have dementia. And they're not, under our current belief system, they're not telling a fib. They went and offered a a snack and made sure that they didn't need a toilet and that they were comfortable, maybe got them a blanket or whatever. Okay, congratulations. She just care of the most basic needs you possibly could take care of. But that they're calling out, there's still an unmet need there. And it's not because they have dementia. They may have difficulty communicating their needs because they have dementia, but they're not calling out just for that reason. And we need to stop believing there's nothing we can do to assist with that. So that's my focus on let's dive a little bit deeper into the higher levels of needs. A lot of what our dementia profession has called behaviors over the years, they're reactions to an unmet need. They're the same reactions you or I would have. It's just that we're better. We have more brain function available to mitigate those reactions, find alternate sort of pressure releases for things that frustrate us. And there's a lot that we can do uh, for people with dementia. It's time to just stop saying they have dementia. We just have to be patient. It's the dementia this, it's the dementia that. No, it's pretty much been our response to their needs, not the dementia that's created some of the issues that we see. I I totally agree with that. And Before this interview, you and I had spoken a little bit, and I really enjoyed what you said about getting the diagnosis, because I'm in a memory clinic. And Mm -hmm. so when we deliver the diagnosis, Mm -hmm. what we do, what we speak to the person receiving the diagnosis and the care partner, we start giving them guidance on how to best live. It doesn't mean, oh, I have a dementia diagnosis, so right away I give up the car keys. Right Mm. away I have no say in anything. What we try to do is provide anticipatory guidance, such as there may come a time when driving is not a good idea. And 
if you, for those of you who've listened to my earlier podcast or for those who are just joining, I have uh, a podcast in which I go over four questions to ask. And really those four questions apply to anybody. If I take my car out and I come back home and my son glances at the car and there is a dent in it or there is a big scrape. And if my son were to say to me, where'd that come from? And I don't know, or I didn't notice it was on the driver's side. We have a problem regardless of my cognitive ability. If I'm not paying attention to that, what else am I not paying attention to? A lot of times you'll hear people say, if you want to understand what's going on, put yourself in their place. And that's okay, but that's only going to get us 80% maybe there as far as the level and scope of our understanding. What I like to say is take the dementia out of it for a minute and look at ourselves. The example you just gave as far as there are a lot of people out there who are nowhere near a dementia diagnosis that shouldn't be on the road. And thinking back to even those first weekends of the 2020 and and during the pandemic when everything was closed down and weekends when maybe we socialized with friends or went shopping, went to the movies, we couldn't do that. Did we as human beings without dementia find ourselves walking around the house looking for something to do, get frustrated because we didn't have anything to do? Maybe by the end of the day, we might have been a little harsh in a response to one of the kids or a little crankier than usual. That's a normal human reaction. We were bored. We were frustrated. But boy, you do that in a memory enhancement building and you'll get labeled something, a wanderer, Mm -hmm. a a temperament risk, et cetera, et cetera. But to your point as well, I just posted actually something on my blog, on my website, where I... um, Again, I sometimes feel like the Lone Ranger here. I posted the question on my blog, person-centered what? Because we've heard this term, new buzzword in town, person-centered care, over and over again. We see it on billboards. We see it in a person-centered care. Okay, I love the person-centered part because nobody on this planet, dementia or not, has the same set of fingerprints. But... To me, and I think in general, the word care in a health provider environment tends to align itself with a a level of being an invalid in some way. They can't do this for themselves. We have to do this for them. We have to care for them, do all of this for them. And toward the end, yes, that may or may not be true, depending on what kind of dementia, how it's affected them, what support they've had leading up to the you know, final phase here. But in the beginning, upon diagnosis, most people with dementia don't need care, per se. So I broke it down into, we've even though there's a fancy seven or nine stage official breakdown of dementia, we'll break it down into three stages beginning mild, moderate, and severe. So we've got three stages of dementia, but we've only got one word to cover it, care. What's wrong with this picture? My suggestion is that in that first stage, why don't we call it person-centered collaboration? 
where maybe or even person-centered support. Yeah, exactly. Where they need someone, maybe a trusted friend or relative to help them as you do at your clinic, develop a plan for going forward. That doesn't mean you have to stop going for walks today, but someone to collaborate with so that they can continue with a good quality functional life. And then maybe as we move into that moderate stage, maybe they need a little more help, maybe not. Again, we, we need to quit on the stereotypes. For the most part, they may need a little more help. So maybe we can say person-centered assistance for that. Post-it notes. Nobody thinks of a post-it note in the same breath that they think of a pair of crutches or a cane. But what I tell my students is if you hurt your foot, you would maybe need a cane or a pair of crutches as a tool to help you go about your daily life and function within your society, your community, to a person with maybe that moderate, mild to moderate stage, a post-it note on the refrigerator that may help them remember an appointment is on the same level. It's a tool to help them function in life. And then, of course, as we get to those final stages, if people do transition to where they do need help with everything. It's very hard for them to do things for themselves. Fine, go ahead and call it person-centered care. But I think we need to just quit lumping everything under that dementia diagnosis. So that's my story and I'm sticking to it. <laughs> no, those are really great perspectives. I had a situation a few weeks ago where one of my clients had a loved one in an assisted living and her family member was male, big guy, big burly guy, had been lifted weights, been athletic his whole life and he got lost. So he was trying to find his room and he wandered into the room of another resident who had family. And one of the family members who was male, instead of saying, I'm sorry, I, I think you might be in the wrong room. Maybe go out and turn right. This individual saw my client's family member, who is a large guy, and went on the offensive. Went up to this individual and said, what are you doing here? You don't belong here. You need to get out. So, so let's, like you said, let's take it out of the dementia realm. I'm a big guy and I'm looking for something and I walk into someone else's space and then outside of the institution, that type of interaction would be, Hey bro, I think you're in the wrong room. Mm -hmm. Oh, my bad. Walk out. But we take what happened instead was a very aggressive response. So if I'm a big guy and I'm trying to find my friend and I walk into the wrong area and I have another guy who is, Hey, where do you think you're going? You don't belong here. Well, that may be a fist fight that yeah. was triggered by aggressor number one. So what happens is my client's family member reacted very strongly to that aggressive approach with more aggression that again, if that had been a tailgate or if that had been a local bar, nobody would find fault with person with the recipient of the aggression. Instead, her family member wound up getting sent to Jero Psych for an evaluation.
Yeah, and yeah, his aggression was basically triggered by the family member who really, maybe the family member thought the family member was protecting mm -hmm. his loved one, but it made no, it, it triggered. Well, and yes, and I think that part of that comes from we need to debunk these stereotypes and stigmas of that are out there that I don't know, I see posts sometimes on websites and, and other platforms that are just learn what to do about aggressive behaviors because they will happen. And we've accepted this stigma that if you give someone with dementia a butter knife, they're going to use it to disembowel the neighbor's cat. That dementia means they're all walking around, walking into walls and mean and aggressive. We've created that with a lack of understanding. We've you know, lit the match to that fuse of frustration. And every time an incident like that happens, sprinkle just a little more gasoline on that fire because as well as I do, Rita, that that other family went home and said, oh my God, it's a good thing we were there. Oh, this yeah. man came into her room. Oh, what could have happened? What could have happened was they might've had a very nice conversation. She might've uh, helped him find his way back to his room. And we do, and I don't mean this as a criticism because I think people have good hearts and they want to do the right thing, but with the kindest of hearts and the best of intentions, we've created a lot of not just our own problems dealing with this, but the issues that we view as problematic. And I'll give you an example. I was doing class and one uh, of the students said to me, she said, can I ask your advice? Well, absolutely. That's why we're all here. She said that she was a, a home care giver through a structured agency, not family caregiver. And that the woman that she cared for wanted to always take her doll that to her was a tool. I don't see doll therapy as infantilizing people. It's a tool. It's a therapy tool. She wanted to take the baby doll to the table with her every day for lunch. And the family was concerned that she wasn't eating because she wanted to feed the baby instead of eating her own lunch. Okay. The solution, not really a solution, but we will call it that for a minute here, that they came up with was, well, take the doll away from her. Don't let her bring the doll to the table. Oh, now she's not going to eat, is she? <laughs> yeah, yeah, at which point she went from being a nurturing caregiver of a baby to flipping, flipping it, that really wouldn't eat. Now, all of a sudden, we, we have combativeness. There was no problem with, quote, unquote, behavior until we created it. Was there an issue as far as her getting adequate nutrition, possibly, but that's the issue you have to address. If bringing that doll or that stuffed pet or your goldfish bowl to the table is going to keep you calmly in the right environment, then we need to find other methods, other foods, other things to do. My suggestion was, why don't you try getting one of those little disappearing ink baby bottles from the dollar store so that she could 
feed the baby, but still eat her food. Before I hopped on to this call, I was in a uh, seminar with the clinic that I practice in. Mm -hmm. And on uh, every Friday afternoon, we have a learning seminar, which is awesome. And the physician giving the presentation was talking about a particular case study where this person had some really complicated and detailed delusions or false beliefs. And he said, when you think about delusions and false beliefs, a lot of times it's existing memories that kind of get fragmented and mm -hmm. knit back together in a, in a unique way. Because right. we all joke amongst ourselves. Like I've already decided, should I go into care? I'll be the resident following the nurses around trying to give out help. I'll be the one stealing the, the medication cart because I'll see it and I'll think I have to give out meds. I have or that situation I'll... actually. Really? Yeah. Correct. Correct. What we did actually, she was a wonderful woman. Her name was Margaret. She had been an oncology nurse for probably over 40 years. She'd been retired close to 20. She was in that phase of her Alzheimer's, her dementia, that we tend to think of not quite as late stage, but kind of working her way there at a pretty good clip. But she would follow uh, us around when we were doing our med pass and she would just snap right back to all, all of those longer term visceral memories would come back to her and she'd follow us around and you young nurses don't know how to keep a clean med cart. Shame on you. <laughs> okay, how hard is that? At the end of the med pass, we gave her a spray bottle with some water and paper towels and she had herself a proud time saying, this is how you do it. This is how you do this. When some people would argue that and say, oh, well, you gave her water and you're making a fool out of her. Not really. She wanted to show us. She wanted to impart something to us, to teach us. And what greater gift is there than someone handing you knowledge or trying to pass along their, their education to you? And it, it, was a sense of pride for her. Yeah, I'm sorry I interrupted you there. But look at this. We're both two people in two different parts of the country mm -hmm. doing the exact same thing. Mm -hmm. Yep, because it works. <laughs> and, and I call it entering their reality, which or, or I think you've said stepping into their world. And that makes a lot of sense because I believe that our need to have a purpose, our need to find like, we all have a place in, in our world, in our tribe, in our society, in our family. We all have a role. Yes. Most of us have several roles. And what really stinks is as we experience a neurocognitive illness, which is what dementia is, it is neurocognitive degeneration, big fancy words for things being chipped away. As our abilities may be chipped away, our need for purpose remains. What we don't have are opportunities and outlets. And if you keep taking away my outlets, I may find other outlets that you may not find acceptable. Like I had a gentleman who wanted to mow the lawn all the time. And that was his thing. He fixated on that. 
and the family was concerned. It was a gas mower. He was a smoker. And so he wasn't always good about extinguishing his cigarette when he was filling the gas tank. So mm-hmm. they, they had some definite safety concerns. So I was like, don't take away the mowing, modify the activity. For Father's Day, one of the sons got him an electric mower. And and he said, it's better for the environment. And what it kind of is. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so And so now we had an electric mower. And it wasn't the kind with the cord. It was the kind with the battery. And the and then one of the other sons removed the blade because dad was forgetting where the grass ended and the gravel began. And we didn't want a spinning motor to pick up gravel and cause an accident. So now dad has a mower. It sounds like a mower. It operates like a mower. And when it would stop, he would the family would take the battery out, recharge it, and that forced dad to take a break because that was the other concern. He would be out in the Alabama sun mowing for hours. Battery goes dead. Hey, dad, come on in and have some iced tea with us while you wait for the battery to charge. Cool. Dad would sit down, have some iced tea, hang out with the family, go back and mow. And to me, that was a way to meet someone's needs, to to align their activities with their purpose in a way that was safe for everybody. Okay, I'm going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we'll hear more from Donna. So stay tuned. Exactly. And again, I think when people become helicopter caregivers, and I, that's what we've become. I love that. Versus free become, range caregivers. That's right. We are helicopter caregivers. Oh, here, let me do that for you. Here, let me get that for you. I think when that happens in the home environment with home caregivers, again, I think people just need more foundational understanding of give them a chance to screw it up before we decide that they can't do this. Now, a very valid and logical argument to that Donna Land theory is, well, what if we allow them this freedom and it's one time too many and they hurt themselves? A dementia diagnosis is not a no-knock warrant into their life where maybe you were making cookies the morning of your doctor appointment and you go and you get the diagnosis, okay, no more oven work for you. Maybe you liked watching the prices right in the morning and Wheel of Fortune at night. And from day one, oh, no, it's PBS for you from now on, Grandpa. No more game shows for you. I think people do this with a good heart and good intention, feeling like we, we now are responsible for their safety. And yes, you are. But that, again, doesn't mean that you have to take everything away and hover. It's easier to observe a situation and go step by step with it than to just suddenly feel like you have to go in and revamp the whole house and turn everybody's life upside down. Been going for a walk every day for the last 30 years, every morning. They go for their walk around the neighborhood. They come home. But what happens if one day they get lost? How about if maybe once a week or so, more if there's more family that can help, you go for a walk with them, but hang back. Don't just try, you're taking up the rear here. Just hang back. Did they 
hesitate which corner they needed to go left or right on the way home. Were, as you say, with the traffic, were they vigilant? Did they understand the stop as opposed to the walk sign? Be observant. And the way the symptoms of dementia present gradually, the changes should be made gradually. And in that way, those changes are keeping pace with the person's life and where they're at rather than the person's life is over here and these changes we make are way up here and that's where there's the gap communication gap and functional gap and i i think a lot of our call it mummy shrouding for people with dementia creates more functional disability sooner than the disease progression itself would have if we had just observed and brought on these safety measures or changes commensurate with the disease progression. And, and I think that's trust. We have to trust, see them as human beings, not zombified monsters that it's all a matter of perspective. I think something that you said really resonates and it's something I, I do tell family caregivers and that is not to you, it's important to allow the person living with dementia to do as much for themselves and as much of their own activity as long as they can and as safely possible. Mm -hmm. Because once it's like anything else, if I don't use a certain computer program, like there's a statistical program I use for work and I'll use it for a while, especially when I'm teaching a specific class. And then I may not use it for a couple of months. But when I go to boot that sucker up again, I, wait, how did I do a multiple regression again? Especially when we have the updates and the mm -hmm. way I did it that used to work, analyze, compare means, multiple regression. Now the drop down menus have changed and I have to reteach myself and it's very frustrating. So that happens in all of our lives. Exactly. So don't take away things that people love to do and it gives them pleasure and it also maintains their function. I've seen a caregiver or family members get really upset. Be, I have a great example. I had a woman who always put on her own makeup and as the disease progressed, she was having some more issues with eye-hand coordination. So maybe the lipstick was getting a little off. It was getting perhaps a little garish where her spouse, his spouse, uh, her spouse was so concerned about how he would be judged based on her appearance that he took the makeup away. He would not allow her to put the makeup on because he didn't like how it was looking. And that was upsetting her for good reason. And then she wouldn't go out of the house because she never walked out of the house without her quote face on. Mm -hmm. and, when, and there are days I say to my colleagues, there are days in my clinic, I feel more like a family counselor than a nurse practitioner. And I said to him, let her put on her damn makeup. What you can do is instead of the bright red, because bright red lipstick shows every misstep, Mm -hmm. maybe get softer colors. So if she does color outside the lines a little bit, it's less obvious. Use makeup that is not water resistant, that is easier to wipe off and fix. 
Mm -hmm. So that way, if she's putting on the mascara and she's like overshot, you can help her fix it. I think a lot of that, Rita, comes down to the question of whose problem is it? Is it a problem for her that she's, I mean, <laughs> my kids have chided me about my lipstick smears since the day they could talk. Okay. And being a boomer, I'm still very into the little colored eye pencils. And yeah, I've, I've been hearing about that for years. Does it bother me? No, it's the way I do my face. It's like playing with a crayon box and I love it. But <laughs> the thing is, so it doesn't bother me. It seems to bother them more than it bothers me. We have to ask ourselves at some point, who's problem is it? Is it a problem for your dad that he thinks your seven and eight-year-old children are you and your brother at that age? Or is it giving him joy to be back at feeling that he's at that time in his life when he was the provider and he had felt purpose and probably some of the best years of his life? It's not a bad place to hang out the best years of your life. So we have to ask ourselves, but the families get frustrated with it. No, dad, that's not me and Bobby. That's these are your grandchildren over and over again. And all we're doing is constantly telling them you're wrong, you're wrong, you're wrong. So there goes any hope of self-esteem. We really, we have good hearts and we have good intentions. And dad says, okay, I, I admit maybe I, there's not enough family or whatever. Maybe I do need to move into an assisted community but I'm taking that recliner with me. Oh my God. Oh, he can't take that old thing. Oh my God. With the duct tape on the footrest and la, 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 la. <laughs> it's for his dignity. We look at it and we see a battered chair with duct tape on the footrest. And maybe that gentleman looks at that duct tape on the footrest and remembers the day that that mutt that you kids brought home, daddy, can we keep him? Can we keep him? chewed the daylights out of that chair. And that's why I ended up being the best hunting dog he ever had 18 years and a lot of fond memories. We look at these things as this should go to the dump. It has no value, but we really need to respect like, why is that battered piece of junk so important to that person? When we say, oh, it's, it's for their dignity. I'm sorry, dignity is when somebody says, I'd like to take that chair. And we say, okay, what side of the room do you want us to put it on? To me, that's dignity. Whose problem is it? Is it hurting your loved one? No. <laughs> is doing it your way causing distress to your loved one? Ah, knock it off. You'll see okay. a peaceful interaction. One of the one of the amazing um, educational experiences that I've had was learning about Montessori dementia education through Cameron Camp. His website is Sen C E N number four for Ard A R D Advanced Applied Research in Dementia, and we think of Montessori as children, but mm -hmm. it's not for children. It's just a teaching method. It's a learning method where it's maybe more demonstrative instruction rather than words that... How could a family caregiver apply some of those Montessori techniques? Yeah, just in, in a sense of let them help with dinner. They can still 
help with things. Now, no, I'm not suggesting that someone with maybe visual or, or spatial in, impediments, let's not assign them to take the vat of boiling spaghetti water off the stove. But there are other things that they can do. With, if you want to even, because when I talk about it, people are like, oh my God, what? where's this girl been? It's pie in the sky. And we look at people in our care communities now and say, oh yeah, she's going to write a letter to a congressman. She doesn't remember what she had for breakfast this morning. Terrible stereotypes. But if we search Bing, Google, YouTube, whatever search you want to use, videos from Dementia Australia, Dementia Netherlands, France, for one, it has adapted and embraced a Montessori it's amazing. Yes, they they have some impediments, but the caregivers are there, but you can't see them. They're not hovering. And they plan their own meals and they shop or they plant their own vegetables. And it, it's just wonderful. I, I strongly suggest people at least take a look at it because it's not pie in the sky. It is a way of helping them to maintain function for as long as possible, being there to assist if needed. And then just, again, take up the rear. You don't need to be front and center directing the traffic of their life. Yeah, you bring up really awesome points. And I think that's my issue with traditional long-term care. It is so highly regulated that um, when I worked as a nursing assistant in the 80s, I had a gentleman who liked to have a raw egg for breakfast every day. That was his thing. He, he wanted a raw egg. And we were like, okay, you want a raw egg? Here you go. And now with the regs, we can't give people a raw egg because OMG, what if they get salmonella? Guess what? I, I buy the pre-washed lettuce that allegedly was pre-washed and I got sick off of it because it wasn't as pre-washed as it was supposed to be. Yeah. So as long as there's life, there's going to be mishaps. And having a, a diagnosis of some type of neurocognitive issue doesn't mean, again, you wrap me in bubble wrap. I will take my risks. So to me, I'm, I'm hearing your uh, suggestion to formal and informal caregivers Let's stay in the background and step in when truly needed. True. And I would say at the very least, find middle ground. And if we still have a minute or two, let me give you an example of that. It's my pet peeve and that I could name, I won't name them, but I could name one major provider of assisted living and memory care who have their policy, this is not state mandated, their policy is no fresh flowers on the memory care units. So number one, you haven't even met my loved one yet, but you mm -hmm. seem to have this impression that there's some pond water swilling aardvark that's just going to eat through the flowers and suck up all this stymy, gooey water because they won't know any. And come on, think about it. Middle ground here. The, the last time anybody checked, I don't think there was hemlock in the Mother's Day bouquet. What you have are usually things like daisies. We'll give them chamomile tea before bed. That's a daisy. Coneflowers. What'd you spend on the vaccination supplements last month? Okay. 
make and roses are edible. Rose petals are yes, considered an rose edible hips flower. tea. So come to as an administrator in the interest of even community business development, supporting local businesses. Can you not sit down with the owner of a local flower shop and or two or three? So you're not being biased. We're happy to give your business cards out, but we need an assurance that anything in these bouquets is not super toxic. And I think the thing that breaks my heart the most is I love flowers uh, and most people love flowers. Okay. To this person on that memory care unit, those flowers might trigger that emotional memory of her husband bringing her a little bouquet every Friday night, got him at the train station on the way home. Thank you. I love you. Might trigger those memories of your kids coming home with little hand-picked bouquets. Not just the here and now pleasantness of them, but there's meaning to giving of flowers. To take that away, why? Okay, yeah, you're worried about the resident's going to do this and the resident's going to do that. And you know what? You don't tell anybody. You're worried you're going to have to do one more state report. Right. You know? So could we, and, and I'm not criticizing that. We need to keep people in a safe environment, but there's middle ground. And I think that communities need to do more not all of them. God bless them. So thank you so much. And this has been my guest, Donna Morante. And I really think your take-home message has been to be more of a free-range caregiver versus a helicopter caregiver, to find middle ground, and to really maximize the abilities of our families and friends living with dementia instead of shortchanging their experiences. Exactly. So I will leave you with this. We've come to accept this horrible buzz phrase that dementia is the long goodbye. To that, oh, I would say life is a long goodbye if you think about it, but we live it to the fullest anyway. So to all those of you out there who are doing it right and trying to do it right, God bless you, Rita, <laughs> and I and many others out there are here to help you, to educate, reach out. Please don't get stuck in the stereotypes. And to those of you who think you've got it right and you'll never change. Okay. And together, <laughs> we all help you make dementia your bitch. Absolutely. Go for it. Thank you, Rita. All right. I hope you found this podcast helpful. Please rate and review on your favorite podcast platform so other dementia caregivers can find this podcast. If you are a caregiver for someone with dementia and need help understanding and dealing with these behaviors, please contact me. You can find me on Facebook, Make Dementia Your Bee, or email me, info at makedementiayourbitch.com.